Hello friends and welcome back to the VET ECC podcast. I just want to thank a few people for their feedback. Ben, thank you very much. Taken to heart and much obliged. And also to Lucia who reports being so captivated that she managed to lose her dog while out on a walk. I don't know if it's because Andrew and I were so captivating or if you had a bit much to drink but it's appreciated anyway. This is episode one of the Foundation series and this is really aimed at people who are transitioning either into emergency medicine from general practice or from large animal practice into smallies world or to emergency medicine. This this series is really designed to introduce or reinforce some of the key concepts in emergency medicine uh, for you seasoned professionals out there probably not super interesting but hey maybe we can all learn something together uh, so the topic of this podcast is fluid resuscitation so we're going to talk about the type of patients that require fluid resuscitation uh, what to use how to use it um, and how to assess response so um, things like fluid responsiveness in more critical patients and subtle changes are, are bit beyond the scope of today's podcast but perhaps that's a, a discussion for a later time. So um, you may have come across the term shock dose or shock rate fluids or shock rate and this is typically quoted as 60 to 90 mils per kilogram which is about equal to the total blood volume of your average dog or cat. So um, this concept comes from studies in dogs and uh, I believe dogs where they anaesthetize them, um, induce hemorrhage or hemorrhagic shock by removing blood um, and they found that after about a third of the total blood volume had been removed we started to see clinical signs so uh, tachycardia etc. Now we know that when you're giving fluids only about a third of it is going to stay in the vessels after a, a short time so two-thirds of that fluid um, that we give into a vein is going to diffuse out into the interstitium so if you lose a third of your blood and you want to replace it with fluids, you need to give three times that amount. So the idea that two thirds is going to diffuse out leaves you with only one third floating around in the vessels. So um, you end up with removing a third of 60 to 90 mils, replacing it with three thirds essentially, and you end up with a shock dose of 60 to 90 mils. Now, my real problem with this concept and this terminology is that it's really confusing and I think misleading. I'm starting my personal war on the term shock dose. Here and now today we're making a stand. We'll talk a bit more how to use boluses appropriately and a bit more of a, a logical or rational approach to this. So first I want to talk about dogs and I want to separate dogs and cats as patients because they do things quite differently and the way we go about treating them can be quite different. So from a dog point of view, your, your classic dog presenting in hypovolemic shock is your guy who's been vomiting, having diarrhea all day or in some cases three, four days. It could be a bit of pancreatitis, it could be a foreign body, it could be parvo. But all you know if they, they've been messing up their, their carer's house all day long or all week long. So these guys are just dumping fluid into their GI tract. Um, and then it's coming out as either, either diarrhea or vomit. Along with it, all the lovely electrolytes that they should be holding on to. So once you lose that 
let's say, third fluid or, or whatever threshold uh, an individual dog will have, the body starts to adjust. And it does that by increasing heart rates, increasing heart contractility, starts constricting peripheral blood vessels, and then they go into what we call compensated hypovolemic shock. So you can check blood pressure in these guys, but probably not super helpful because if the body's compensatory mechanisms are working well, then your blood pressure will be pretty normal. So what you need to rely on is your physical exam and your history. And these these are really going to be your key indicators. You know, how does the patient look? Well, you would expect them to be tachycardic, but sometimes defining tachycardia can be difficult. So if you've got a canine athlete like a, a dog who competes in agility training or obedience or a working dog, their resting heart rate might actually be quite low. Some greyhounds and, and more, I suppose, elite um, finger quotation dogs um, can have a resting heart rate around 60 beats per minute and if that's the case if they're coming in with a heart rate of 100 and seeming fairly calm then that might well be tachycardia for them there was a good study by Mark Rishnu and colleagues out of um, UC Davis um, and Vin where they slapped a bunch of heart rate monitors on dogs and monitored their resting heart rates over a couple of days and they found that despite size there's really no statistical difference in heart rate in dogs so breed and size does not really matter um, how true that is in in practice it's difficult because anecdotally we've always thought that smaller dogs have higher heart rates and, and bigger dogs have lower heart rates on average could that be because bigger dogs are sometimes a bit more confident and little little dogs a bit more anxious and, and highly strong it's difficult to say but some may consider that if you've got a St. Bernard in with a heart rate of 100, 110, um, they're pretty tachycardic. So use your judgment. Take a bit of a holistic view of the patient. Um, if in doubt, you can do a little fluid challenge in the way of a bolus, uh, but we'll talk about how to do that, that later. So you've got this patient. You're concerned about hypovolemia. You're concerned about shock. You're thinking they're compensating well at this point. What's going to happen if you do nothing? Either you don't treat or they don't bring the patient in. So if they continue to lose fluid, then the body's compensatory mechanisms just get exhausted. Um, their mucous membranes start to look pale. They've got altered mentation. They're obtunded. Uh, rectal temperature is low. Heart rate and respiratory rate will be potentially trending back down to normal from increased. Um, and as they deteriorate, as they get worse, all of those constricted blood vessels start to become resistant to constriction and slowly start to dilate. So you've got a patient whose constricted blood vessels and higher heart rate has allowed them to maintain perfusion. That's all crapping out. So right now, cells are starving for oxygen. And if you're looking for the, the textbook definition of shock, it is simply cellular hypoxia you're just not getting enough oxygen to the cells they're dying they're starving so what are you going to do really what these guys need is a fluid bolus and i suppose you can approach a fluid bolus in in a couple of different ways but regardless of how you do it the the concept is is similar across the board so a bolus is just simply uh, a set amount of fluid that you deliver quickly 
over a set period of time. Historically, we've said that any type of crystal oil would do you, so whatever you've got lying around. But uh, I think the more evidence we get, and certainly in human studies, we see that uh, more balanced crystalloids like Hartman's in the UK, uh, lactate ringers or LRS in the States, and, and plasma lights are starting to edge out saline, 0.9% sodium chloride. You can get some renal vasculature constriction or vasoconstriction, and you can get a decrease in GFR and some other things with saline, and it's lacking any sort of electrolytes beyond sodium and chloride. So if that's what you have, bash it in. But probably something like Harman's or, or LRS is going to be uh, a bit more of a, a deal option for these guys. So how do you go about giving a bolus? Well, typically for a dog, you're going to deliver 10 to 20 mils per kilogram over about 10 to 15 minutes. How aggressive you are depends on how much fluid you think they've lost um, and your, again, your physical exam and, and their status. I suppose I'm a bit more aggressive with boluses these days and I'm doing them over uh, five to ten minutes in dogs but it all depends on the size and the volume and and some dogs you just can't get fluids in over that that sort of rate so you've brought them into the clinic you've decided you're going to do a, a bolus but keep in mind that they're they're quite cold they're probably uncomfortable so don't put them on a cold metal table just to, to shiver their brains off get a nice blanket you can cover them with a bit of a fleece if you have one um, and let's say you're starting with 10 mils per kilogram as a bolus over 10 minutes. So the quicker you can get those fluids in, the better. At the end of the day, shock is dying. The longer shock goes on, the more harm there is to the body. And again, cats are different. We'll talk about that a bit later. So your options are either taking a whole fluid bag, and if you're fortunate enough to have multiple bag sizes, so... Typically, they'll either come in a 100, 250, 500, and a litre bag. So if you've got a 25 kilo dog and you want to give a 10 mil per kilo bolus, you can just get that 250 mil bag and just squeeze it in. Um, you can either use a fluid pump or you can use one of those really lovely pressure infusers. If you don't have a pressure infuser, it's really hard to deliver a high rate of fluids to a larger dog and what can happen is especially on overnights if you're just a, a two-person team then having one person sit there squeezing a bag of fluids is not really a good use of of uh, person power so getting a pressure infuser how you can buy them on ebay quite cheap most suppliers will have them i know in the uk infusion concepts carry them and sell them so they're a really nice investment if you're doing any sort of orthopedic or, or scope surgery in practice, you've probably got one of these lying around in theatre that they're using to help flush fluids in. So if you don't have an appropriate bag size, you don't want to deliver a whole bag, then you can use a fluid pump. So let's say you've got a 12 kilo dog, you want to give them 10 mils per kilo, so 120 mils over 10 minutes. So if you multiply the weight of the dog times 10, you get 120 mils. You figure you want it to go over 10 minutes and you know that uh, there are six sets of 10 minute blocks in a minute. Uh, so you divide that by six, you end up with 720. So you're gonna deliver that at 720 mils an hour. And most pumps will have a, a rate and also a volume to be infused. So set your rate for 720, set your volume to be infused 
to 120 and then clear your volume and fuse so you know how much you've given. I appreciate that listening to this and following along is probably really annoying. So I will include a, a written guide on the website in the show notes as well. So this concept's the same as the fluid challenge we, we discussed earlier if you're trying to figure out if your patient does need a bit of fluid to bring down that tachycardia. So 10 minutes have passed, you've delivered your fluid bolus, now it's time to reassess your patient. Your goal for these fluid boluses are not set in stone, you don't have a, well this size dog needs to have this side of heart rate and, and temperature etc etc, but you do want to see an improvement. So your typical perfusion parameters, your mentation, you would expect these quiet obtunded dogs to start brightening up, looking around, maybe picking their head up, um, you'd expect the heart rate to come down, pulse quality to improve, and your other perfusion parameters like rectal temperature, mucous membrane color, capillary refill time, all starting to get better. Now, um, there's uh, historically a uh, um, saying about the, the poor man's Dynamap. So if you put your fingers on the distal pulse and you can feel it, then the blood pressure should be etc. etc. But I think reliably it's probably not the, the best way to go about it. But you can palpate pulses, you can palpate pulse quality as a guide, but it's just another another piece of the puzzle. It's not something you want to rely on completely. So if you're not seeing much of a, a response, then simply go ahead and give another bolus. It could be that they've had so much vomiting and diarrhea that they've become so dehydrated that they they need more fluids. So the joy of this method is that you can keep titrating your therapy, monitoring response, and then once you get to a point that you're happy with, you simply stop. I think there's a bit of a danger in saying, well, let's put them on a shock rate fluid, uh, 60 to 90 mils per kilo per hour, and just leave them because one, you could either not deliver enough fluids or not deliver it quickly enough especially in a large dog or you could potentially fluid overload them which potentially is just as dangerous and we know that continuous infusions of fluid aren't going to bump up our, our blood pressure because if you're giving slower rates of fluid over a long period of time it's all going to diffuse out of the bloodstream before you can get a, a solid improvement in blood pressure. So get your bolus going. If you've got lots of other things going on, if you're in the middle of busy consults, then you can start your bolus, walk away and let your, your nursing or your tech team uh, finish that bolus, reassess the patient. Uh, maybe you can give them some guidelines and say, you know what, I want to keep giving boluses until we get a heart rate of 120 or 100. If you need to to give any more beyond two, then I want you to come get me. Or after the first bolus, come and let me know uh, what you found and, and we can talk about what to do next. So, um, you know, from a, a team approach, it's really nice to have your nursing team involved because one, they're great at this. They're probably going to be spending more time with the patient than you are anyway, and um, their input can be be really valuable. So once you've hit your endpoints, be that a normal heart rate, cementation's picking up, your rectal temperature, your blood pressure, whatever, then you stop your boluses and you need to come up with your ongoing fluid plan. This typically involves some sort of maintenance calculation, assessing dehydration, but then importantly, measuring ongoing losses and being careful that you're not under or over hydrating these guys uh, with these guys so i'll i'll put some resources about how to do this in the show notes because there's tons of good guys uh, out there and we're not trying to recreate the wheel here so most patients in my experience will respond quite 
quickly to boluses. In extreme cases, you can find yourself giving up to 40 to 60 mils per kilo. If you're getting to that amount of fluid and you're not seeing a response, then you really need to stop and reevaluate your patient and start looking for other issues like is there an arrhythmia? Is there sepsis? Um, is there ongoing hemorrhage internally or what is going on that's preventing these guys from improving? Again, that's a bit beyond the scope of today's talk, but I suppose it's just a, a point that needs to be made. So let's talk about our friend, the cat. And cats don't like to read textbooks, uh, only review articles apparently. So cats do not have a typical tachycardic compensatory response. So when these guys go into shock, um, typically they become bradycardic and hypothermic. You might also find that cats in hypovolemic shock present in respiratory distress, because actually the shock organ of the cat is the lung, or one of the shock organs, and um, their lung perfusion can really suffer significantly when they're, they're hypovolemic or hypertensive. So just a, a little thing to keep in the back of your mind. So um, when you're hypothermic, your catecholamine receptors are not functioning appropriately. Um, I think it's uh, below 36 degrees centigrade. Sorry for our American friends, but uh, I'm sure you can convert it. Um, now, once you start to warm up, these guys start to kick in. Um, and herein really lies the danger of the cat fluid resuscitation. If you take a cold, hypertensive cat, fill them full of fluid, once they start to warm up, these guys are at a really high risk of fluid overload once they begin to, to warm up. On the flip side, if you warm them up aggressively without fluid resuscitating them, then they start to vasodilate and their shock worsens and they deteriorate. So it's a really fun balancing act for the cat. So typical approach, I think it's fair to start with 10 mils per kilo over about 15 minutes. You could start with five mils per kilo, but it's difficult to say if that volume really expands the intravascular space significantly. So 100% cannot fault you for being cautious with these guys, but my, my usual starting place is about 10 mils per kilo. Nice thing about cats is they're all pretty uniform in size. So you can either use a fluid pump using the same method we described above, or you can even pull it up in a syringe. So if you've got a uh, five kilo cat you want to give 10 mils per kilo to then you pull up 50 mils you can either give it by hand or you can give it with a syringe driver so you've got a bit more flexibility with our feline friends now again how they respond to resuscitation is different than dogs so rather than having this tachycardia and heart rate coming down their heart rate actually starts to come up starts to trend towards normal their mentation will improve and their rectal temperature improves personally i find it really hard to assess mucous membrane color in cats at the best of times so i don't typically rely on it um, but your mileage may vary so we're faced with a difficult situation of balancing heat and fluid in these guys and they might not truly get out of shock until their temperature has improved so what you don't want to do is shove a bunch of heat pads shove them in an incubator um, shove a bear hugger on them and just roast them because again you might overshoot they might vasodilate and deteriorate but you want to prevent them from losing heat so again having them on a nice vet bed or a fleece covering them with a fleece and start titrating your fluid therapy so your goal is always to get to sort of a normal or 
some normal fluid status if you overload them really really easy to push these guys into heart failure um, and get some pulmonary edema so be careful if you overshoot furosemide blasix is your friend but just keep a close eye on them this is not the patient you want to just set and walk away from reassess them don't go overboard so that in a nutshell is uh, a very basic approach to fluid resuscitation in dogs and cats biggest point here is re-evaluation this is a multi-step process for most patients so don't set your fluids and walk away don't leave them in a kennel unattended you want to make sure you're coming back to them every five to ten minutes and reassessing until they're getting out of shock and they're, they're becoming normal so not every patient will respond to fluid therapy um, if they're in distributive shock because of sepsis then they may require some vasopressors or inotropes or other support to help normalize them if they have cardiogenic shock they're in congestive heart failure then we definitely don't want to give them fluid because um, they will end up dead um, if they've got reduced cardiac output from an arrhythmia or pericardial effusion or pleural effusion or, or pneumothorax then you might need to correct those issues before you can truly get them back up to a normal status so make sure you evaluate the whole patient don't stop after one finding be holistic in your approach do a full physical exam after you've you've done your primary survey and can't go wrong so hopefully this wasn't over simple hopefully it was quite helpful either way if you do have any questions please get in touch via our Facebook page or the website. There will be an article going up on the website, so feel free to put any comments or questions up there. Otherwise, until next time, be well, be kind, look after yourselves, and bye-bye.